Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Preston. I'm one of the youth pastors here at Eastside, which means I spend a lot of time with 7th to 12th grade students. Uh, so you'll have to forgive me uh, for when that becomes very obvious here in just a moment. Uh, but I am so excited that you are here, whether you are online or here in person. Uh, we are so excited you are with us. Now, before we get started, uh, we're going to start out with a little bit of, you know, a get-to-know-you activity. A little icebreaker, if you will. One of those things in group gatherings that we do that everyone is always so excited about. When they hear icebreaker, they just want to leap for joy. Um, so what I want you to do is something that's actually very simple. I'm not going to make it too complicated for you. But in just a minute, I want you to share with somebody sitting next to you or type in the online chat the best part of your past week. Now, if you're somebody who's like, I don't really know what I want to say to this person next to me, you could say that talking to them has been the best part of your past week. So if you need something, feel free to use that line. Uh, that is free for you to use. So uh, on the count of three, whether you're online or here in person, I expect to hear some chatter or typing about what has been the best part of your past week. On the count of three, one, two, three. Go for it. Now, I realize some of you probably haven't even gotten a chance to share, which that just tells me that at the end of the service, now you have something to talk about together. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, that's going to be great. Yeah. Um, but we are so excited that you're here today. We're going to start off now with just a word of prayer, inviting God's presence to be with us. And we're going to ask God to give us the opportunity to humble ourselves before God so that we can experience exactly what it is that God wants us to experience today, okay? Let's pray together. God, today as a group, we do our best to humble ourselves before you. Father, we ask that you would speak to us, that your spirit would guide us, teach us the things that we need to understand so that we can experience life to the fullest in you. God, we love you and we give you this time. In Jesus' name, amen. We have been in the middle of a series uh, called Live Your Best Life. And honestly, I am all for it. <laughs> I mean, who doesn't want to live their best life? Can you imagine, you know, some kids on the playground, maybe second or third grade, when somebody asks them what they want their lives to be like, answering the question by saying, I want it to be tolerable. <laughs> I want it to be survivable, maybe not too bad, generally not the worst. I want to barely get by with a little help from my friends. No, most of us start out dreaming of living our best life. But sadly, it often plays out a little bit like this. We, we dream of getting older so we can do big kid things. We dream of graduation so we can land our dream job. And when we get a job, whether it's the dream job or not, we start dreaming about retirement, where we might just find ourselves dreaming about 
the good old days. It's a lot of dreaming and not a lot of living the best life. And although we may want to live our best life, if we're being honest, I think a lot of us end up struggling. Seriously, what does it even really mean to live your best life? That's a hard question, right? But I want you to genuinely take a minute to think about that. What does it mean for you to live your best life? And I genuinely want you to think about it because in a minute I'm going to give you another chance to share with someone around you or type in the chat. What does it look like for you to live your best life? How would you define that? What would it look like? What would the key characteristics be if you were living your best life? So whether online or here in person, go ahead and share what that would look like for you. Go ahead. What does it look like to live your best life? That's a, that's a genuinely difficult question. Yet again, maybe something else you could continue the conversation with after the service. But by the nature of my question, there's an implication that some version of life might be better than another. But here's the crazy part. Although many of our ideas about the best life may have been similar, some of our answers were likely a bit different. And even if most of our answers were similar. The motivation or the reason behind our answers may have been different. Not only that, but if we would have asked that same question in a dif different part of the country or even a different part of the world, the answers and the motivations behind the answers likely would have been even more diverse. Well, why? Well, I believe it's because we all live in a context right, a framework that influences how we perceive life. And as, as a result, this framework has a strong impact on how we define what it looks like or means for us to live our best life. Now, to be clear, in many ways, the diversity um, in how we perceive and approach life can be very beautiful. But at the same time, it begs the question, is my personal understanding of or approach to the best life really the best? Or could there be something more or even something different? Now, I can't answer that question for you, but I can tell you this. For those of us who would believe in God the Father, who created the universe and created us in his image on purpose and for a purpose, for those of us who say we believe in Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, the one who walked the earth proclaiming the truth and providing the way for us to experience life and purpose in relationship with God. And for those of us who would say we believe in God, the Holy Spirit, who is the one who resides with us to guide and direct and empower us in this life, we would also have to say that our best life or true life must be rooted in God. But if I'm being honest, I don't think most of us actually live that way. 
myself included. Certainly not all the time. Although, some of us definitely have that heavenly glow more than others. Look around, see if it's you. (laughs) Throughout human history, we've struggled with this. From the beginning of the Bible and all the way through, we see the human tendency to define the meaning of life in our own way. To define good and evil in our own eyes apart from God. And since God is the source of life and meaning, the tragic outcome has been a consistent and destructive barrage of chaos and death. And even though, as a pastor, I may be able to clearly articulate a Christian view of God and humanity, truly seeking to experience my best life is a constant battle. Well, let me be clear. It's not a battle to want to live forever in heaven, just as long as it's my version of heaven. It's not a battle to want God to bless my life and my goals, financial and otherwise. It's not a battle to want Jesus to forgive me and provide a new lease on life each time I continue to do what I want to do, regardless of how selfish and destructive it might be. In fact, it's pretty easy to want my version of the best life, and it's pretty easy for me to ask God to help make it happen. And on top of that, it can be fairly easy for my version of the best life to still look really godly while having broken and destructive motivations that nobody else may ever see or know. Listen, I may know that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and that no one can come to God the Father except through him. I may know that Jesus calls himself the true grapevine and makes it clear that his father is the gardener who cuts off every branch that doesn't produce fruit and prunes branches so they will produce even more. I may know that Jesus makes it clear I should remain connected to him because if I'm not, I can't do anything, certainly nothing of meaning and purpose because at the end of it all, The only thing that remains are the things that are alive in Christ. I may know that not everyone who calls out to Jesus, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of God. And that on judgment day, many will say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and perform many miracles in your name. But Jesus will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. I may know all those things, right? That God is the source of life and power and and truth, but I can still be very prone to pursue my own way and love the things this world offers. That's probably why 1 John 2, 15 to 17 makes it very clear, do not love this world nor the things it offers you, For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. And this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. So... 
if I believe that God's word is true, why in the world do I struggle to experience the best life? The life that's rooted in right relationship with God. What seems to be missing? Now the answer could likely be a lot of different things, but here is what I notice in myself. I mentioned earlier that everyone has a context for their perception of the best life. The context is created by the culture you live in, how you were raised, experiences you've had, and a long list of other things. And for most of us, our context takes priority. It frames how we think about life and ultimately how we define our best life. But this is what I don't want any of us to miss. At the end of the day, our personal context must be rooted in a deeper reality. The reality of the origins of life itself. The reality that God is the source of life and that the only true life both now and into eternity is found in Jesus. Until we embrace this reality, until we come face to face with God, the God of the universe, and find ourselves completely crushed under the weight of God's glory, until we find ourselves frail and miserable as we may seem at times, melted away in the awesome presence of God, I don't believe we'll experience the best life. Because anything else isn't true life. It's a lie. It's kind of like the matrix. It's a house of cards that can't stand in the face of an unshakable kingdom of God. Now the problem, as you may know, is that you can't really look out the window here and uh, see God sitting on the throne in heaven. Most of us haven't had an earth-shaking, waters parting, fire from heaven, blinding light experience. And even if we did, we probably would have the tendency to minimize that experience and eventually forget the feeling of complete humility that kind of moment would bring. And I don't know that there's really any way for me to fully express this idea in a nice little tidy package that's going to transform our lives. Because seeing the truth seems to require both an individual's openness and a divine work of the Holy Spirit. But when we seek God with everything and humble ourselves to the best of our abilities, the reality of God's glorious and powerful presence is what we find. It's the only thing that's left at the end of it all. But I want to warn you, it's not just a lighthearted, feel-good moment. It's absolutely overwhelming. Just listen to how the scriptures describe the overwhelming presence of God. In Isaiah 6, 1 through 5, the prophet Isaiah said this, It was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. 
With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. They were calling out to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations, and the entire building was filled with smoke. Then Isaiah said, it's all over. I'm doomed, for I'm a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the king, the Lord of heaven's armies. He continues in Isaiah 66, 1 through 2, and says this, This is what the Lord says, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? Could you build me such a resting place? My hands have made both heaven and earth. They and everything in them are mine. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will bless those who have humble and contrite hearts, who tremble at my word. And then in Daniel chapter 7, he says this, In my vision that night, I, Daniel, saw a great storm churning the surface of a great sea, with strong winds blowing from every direction. Then four huge beasts came up out of the water, each different from the others. The first beast was like a lion with eagle's wings. As I watched, its wings were pulled off, and it was left standing with its two hind feet on the ground like a human being. And it was given a human mind. Then I saw a second beast, and it looked like a bear. It was rearing up on one side, it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and I heard a voice saying to it, Get up, devour the flesh of many people. Then... The third of these strange beasts appeared and looked like a leopard. It had four birds' wings on its back, and it had four heads. Great authority was given to this beast. Then, in my vision that night, I saw a fourth beast, terrifying, dreadful, and very strong. It devoured and crushed its victims with huge iron teeth and trampled their remains beneath its feet. It was different from any of the other beasts, and it had ten horns. As I was looking at the horns, suddenly another small horn appeared among them. Three of the first horns were torn out by the roots to make room for it. This little horn had eyes like human eyes and a mouth that was boasting arrogantly. I watched as thrones were put in place, and the ancient one sat down to judge. His clothing was as white as snow, his hair like purest wool. He sat on a fiery throne with wheels of blazing fire, and a river of fire was pouring out, flowing from his presence. Millions of angels ministered to him. Many millions stood to attend him. Then the court began its session, and the books were opened. I continued to watch because I could hear the little horn's boastful speech. I kept watching until the fourth beast was killed and its body was destroyed by fire. The other three beasts had their authority taken from them but they were allowed to live a while longer. As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. He was given authority and honor and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. I share those with you to hopefully pique your interest about, you know, reading those passages more thoroughly, <laughs> but also to remind us that God's presence is absolutely mind-blowing. 
If you want to live your best life, you have got to be blown away by the awesomeness of God. It's not enough to sprinkle a little Jesus on your personal kingdom that you've been building. It's not enough to simply pray a prayer and believe that you're good to go about your business. It's not even enough to do all the churchy things that might look so good. God is the ultimate reality. And in the presence of God, nothing else can stand. I imagine it this way. In the presence of God, we all fall to our knees and are crushed under the weight of God's glory. Destroyed, reduced to dust. And if you're anything like me, that's an overwhelming and frightening image. But in the presence of God, what are we but dust? God is that glorious. And yet, in the place of dying to ourselves, recognizing how unworthy we are in the presence of our glorious God, the Lamb of God, Jesus, the one who entered into the world making the ultimate sacrifice for our rebellion, Jesus, the one who offers forgiveness for sin, true life, and eternal healing, raises us from the dust to new life in him. New life, a life full of purpose and peace. It's the best life in loving and life-giving relationship with the God of the universe. It's absolutely mind-blowing but it's the reality. When we truly humble ourselves in the presence of God, proclaiming along with all creation, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who was and is and is to come. When we find ourselves overwhelmed and trembling on our knees in the presence of God, the surprising, the shocking gift of God's redemptive and life-giving love expressed through Jesus and his willingness to die on a human cross takes on deeper and eternally life-changing meaning. Here's what I can tell you. I don't know what's truly motivating you. I don't know what your true priorities are. I don't know why you do what you do. The forces at work beneath the surface of your heart and mind. And I also don't know how you would define your best life. But as we close out, I want each of us to take a minute to reflect on the reality. The reality of what is and what will be. In just a moment, I'm going to close by reading from Revelation 4 and 5. It's an image of God's glorious throne room. And as I read this, I don't want you to get too caught up on images that might sound a bit strange. But I want you to focus on the reality of God's glorious presence and mind-blowing graciousness of Jesus. The lamb that was slain for the sins of the world and now is seated in power where every knee will bow and every tongue confess that although Jesus is truly a faithful friend, right, full of love and grace, Jesus is Lord 
of all. So I encourage you in the coming moments to assume a posture of prayer, whatever that feels best like for you. And I want you to invite the Holy Spirit to speak to you, to say, Father, I am open to what it is that you want to share. Open our eyes as we hear the words from the Apostle John in his vision found in Revelation 4 and 5. It says this, Then as I looked, I saw a door standing open in heaven, and the same voice I had heard before spoke to me like a trumpet blast. The voice said, Come up here, and I will show you what must happen after this. And instantly I was in the Spirit. And I saw a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it, and it wasn't me. The one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones, like jasper and carnelian. And the glow of an emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. Twenty-four thrones surrounded him, and twenty-four elders sat on them. They were all clothed in white and had gold crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and the rumble of thunder. And in front of the throne were seven torches with burning flames. This is the sevenfold Spirit of God. In front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass, sparkling like crystal. In the center and around the throne were four living beings, each covered with eyes, front and back. The first of these living beings was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a human face. And the fourth was like an eagle in flight. Each of these living beings had six wings, and their wings were covered all over with eyes, inside and out. Day after day and night after night, they keep on saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and who is still to come. Whenever the living beings give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down and worship the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and they exist because you created what you pleased. Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. There was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. Then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. <laughs> but one of the 24 elders said to me, stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the heir to David's throne has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. 
Then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered, but it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings. And among the 24 elders, he had seven horns and seven eyes, which represent the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out in every part of the earth. He stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song with these words, you are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it for you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God and they will reign on this earth. Then I looked again and I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels from the throne and the living beings and the elders and they sang in a mighty chorus, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth 